Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. I'm Tamar Hajat. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Cincinnati Children's, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Jason Silverman. Hey, Jason, how are you? I'm good, Tamara. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Any fun new news for you this holiday season? Well, you know, so as we're recording this, uh, school break has officially begun um, at at our house, which basically means that our two boys uh, are now permanently in pajamas for ah. the duration. They're like unreasonably obsessed with the idea of being able to wear their pajamas full time and not have to put on clothing. So um, I, I think, you know, after all this pandemic uh, stuff and people working from home and, you know, figuring out their wardrobe for work from home, like I, I kind of feel like our boys are already set for the future of work because they just love hanging out in their pajamas anyway. Who doesn't like hanging out in their pajamas? <laughs> <laughs> are they at least cool pajamas? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> you know, they, you know, when you grow up, you don't get the chance to wear like, I'm just wearing pajamas that have pictures of sharks on them now, or uh, have funny sayings, like bad puns about sleep and oh. stuff. Um, that doesn't happen as much anymore. It's just uh, all boring stuff. Do you ever do uh, matching pajamas? <laughs> <laughs> so, so my wife tried that uh, last holidays, um, and and so we we had uh, uh, especially with the boys a grudging photo of matching pajamas uh, with the whole family. But it, it, that was that was maybe a one and done uh, type of thing. We'll see. But you have a dog right now, so you we need do. to take a photo with matching pajamas and have your dog wear something matching too. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a struggle getting the dog. So the dog is is only seven months old. And so, you know, even putting uh, we, we have those little uh, snow boots for uh -huh. him because it's, you know, it's been pretty cold the last week or so. And, um, and the, you know, there's rock salt out there. Uh, so it gets a little irritating to his paws. We have him in boots and it's a struggle to get him in boots. So I don't know about pajamas, but we, we can try. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll figure yeah. it out. If you ever take pictures with matching pajamas, just post it on Instagram and we'd love to see them. Maybe next okay. year. To, Maybe we'll, next we'll year. Yeah. With, with when the your dog. dog is older. Yes. Yes. We'll, we'll work towards that. How about you? What do you, what do you, what's going so, on? Um, well, I kind of bought a new condo, so I'm a first time hey, congratulations. <laughs> condo owner. That was quite so, the saga. Yeah. So I am uh, going to do a lot of packing and moving <laughs> this uh, couple next wow. two weeks. So yes. yeah, a little stressful, a little exciting. So we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but but that's exciting. First time phone homeowner. That's, that's a very exciting thing. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have a review here that I'd like to read. It's from GMOWV. It's a very good review. It says, this is a high educational value. Love the podcast. Always looking forward to the next episode. Also, I officially took my PEDS GI boards today and got multiple questions correct because of this podcast. Wow. wow. Enjoy learning about the guests beyond medicine as well. Keep it going. Thank you for that review. And we sincerely hope that you passed your board with flying yeah. colors. And, and if we helped in any way, that is, that is amazing. Fantastic. Thank you so yeah. much for that. Yeah. Today, we have a great topic, Jason. 
Yes, today we are uh, very lucky to have Dr. Sohail Hussain join us to talk about the diagnosis and management of chronic pancreatitis. So I know in the past we have covered uh, acute and uh, acute recurrent pancreatitis with uh, Alia Uch and this allows us to sort of follow on because in a lot of ways, chronic pancreatitis is perhaps a little bit more of a challenging clinical concept, a little bit of a tougher group to recognize and manage effectively. And so uh, we really wanted to be able to sort of follow that clinical train uh, through the development of chronic pancreatitis and really dive a little bit deeper in terms of diagnosis and management. So we're really, really happy to have Dr. Hussein join us today. Absolutely. Dr. Hussein is the professor of pediatrics and the division chief of pediatric gastroenterology at Stanford Children's Hospital. He specializes in caring for children with pancreatic disorders, including pancreatitis, pancreatic insufficiency, and tumors of the pancreas. We're really excited to have him join us today uh, and talk to us uh, about the diagnosis and management of chronic pancreatitis. Um, I feel like we've learned a lot from his episode, so we're excited to share this with you. Yeah, great. On yeah. to the show. On to the show. Dr. Hussein, thanks again so much for joining us on Bow Sounds today. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we always uh, try and get to know our guests a little bit. I mean, we know you uh, from, from presentations at NASPAN and many of our listeners will as well. But uh, for those of uh, our audience that don't know you particularly well, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? That's a tall order, but uh, let me take a crack at it. Uh, I am a physician scientist whose overarching goals are to be a matchmaker, that is to marry science and medicine, and in so doing to elevate the work in the pancreas exocrine field to the highest levels of impact um, by leveraging this rich, cutting edge scientific and medical environment to nurture that strong marriage. Wow. You nailed the one sentence and it's both uh, aspirational and a little romantic. I like it. <laughs> Good for honeymoon. <laughs> um, well, to get to know you a little bit more as well, um, is there a podcast, a book, or TV show that you enjoy and you would recommend um, to our listeners? I listen to the New York Times podcasts on occasion. I like them because they're short and pithy. I also enjoy uh, podcasts on nature and science, or the journals, when they're short. Um, and in terms of reading, I enjoy biographies and history. And uh, I can share three books that are sort of personal favorites. One is yeah. the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, which I read when I was a college student. I still can remember, like I read it just yesterday, the biography of President Obama, the previous one, The Audacity of Hope, which you know I found inspiring as I was a junior faculty. And uh, more recently, uh, a notorious book uh, entitled Bad Blood, which chronicles the Silicon Valley Stanford dropout, Elizabeth Holmes, who started a $9 billion valuation company called Theranos, which turned out to be a fraud. And uh -huh. it was 
I have a sobering connection to this story because my lab is housed in the building that used to be Theranos. Wow. wow. I watched the documentary on that. It was It's very interesting how uh, somebody can have some powerful people invest in something that's really not real. So that's very interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's the medical definition of vaporware <laughs> product that a, never existed. <laughs> it, it's a lesson for all of us. That's true. Wow. Those are, those are good recommendations. Uh, thanks for that. Um, so we, before we get started in sort of the um, meat and potatoes, if you will, of, of today's talk I, I, or today's interview, I just wanted to ask, you know, so in pediatric GI and adult GI, you know, obviously luminal disorders uh, tend to, to uh, loom large and, and then we have the hepatology group and the, the liver specialists and somewhere in the mix, we have the motility docs, um, but pancreas often gets left off to the side and not as many people are devoted um, in their career to pancreatic disorders. How, how is it that you formed your passion and interest in pancreatic disorders? You know, by way of telling you this story, we will launch into some of the interesting topics in pancreatic disorders. My motivation really comes from the desire to solve problems that I saw in the patients that I was privileged to care for. And in 2001, which is now 20 years ago, I happened to see a wave of patients with pancreatitis as a pediatric GI fellow when I was at Yale. And some had moderately severe pancreatitis, and that meant they had uh, things like pancreatic necrosis due to, for example, valproic acid. And another really sort of uh, strong example in my head is a patient who had um, severe acute pancreatitis due to the leukemia drug asparaginase. And I was struck at that time by the lack of understanding about why pancreatitis occurs in these various scenarios, or even the basic lack of a characterization of the problem of pancreatitis in children, for, for that matter, in adults at the time. And this got me interested in studying pancreatic disorders as a group. I also happened to meet my research mentor at Yale, Dr. Fred Gorlick, who had a positive influence in my career towards scientific investigation. Uh, I joined his lab, spent four years uh, with him in training before I started my own wet lab. And I saw the study of mechanisms underlying pancreatic inflammation from a wet lab perspective as a means to study tough questions that could not be ascertained mechanistically from human population studies alone. And so that interest, the ability to investigate really helped me solidify uh, a passion, a career in pancreatic disorders. I might add that it only got more interesting for me uh, this pursuit of pancreatic disorders when I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 2011. I got interested in chronic pancreatitis after I saw, again, several patients. And what I was really struck by in this situation was that my patients initially came to me with acute recurrent pancreatitis. And I know we're going to talk about a lot of this a little later, 
but they seem to progress rapidly to chronic pancreatitis. And it was around this time that there was this growing notion that chronic pancreatitis was really a continuum from acute recurrent pancreatitis rather than distinct entities of acute and chronic. And this notion was advocated most strongly by David Whitcomb, uh, who was then the chief of adult GI at the University of Pittsburgh. And he was the first to discover that patients with hereditary pancreatitis had this highly penetrant gene variant in the trypsinogen isoform called PRSS1. And we pediatricians would see these patients frequently. And I recall at meetings, we'd uh, present them and we'd tell people that it seemed like these patients with PRSS1 seemed to progress quickly. And we were often booed down by some of these senior adult pancreatologists who said that genetics makes no difference in the natural history. It was just that these patients had pancreatitis at an early age. So we thought we would put these theories to the test. And that further solidified my passion for this field. Because um, in the mid-2000s or late 2010s, um, a small group of us uh, formed um, a clinical group led by Alia Uch at the University of Iowa called uh, INSPIRE, which was really to study patients with acute recurrent pancreatitis and chronic pancreatitis. And, and so it, the interesting story is that, um, you know, th this sort of work progressed and Let's fast forward for a minute to 2019. And again, we're talking about why I'm so interested in this problem. I happened to see uh, a roundtable discussion, which I highly recommend when the pandemic lifts, uh, of the Nobel Prize winners, which occurs every year. And this happened to be the 2019 roundtable discussion. And the economics recipient says, when you think something is obvious, put it to the test. And I thought that statement was profound. When you think something is obvious, put it to the test. We had thought it seemed obvious to us that there was a rapid progression from acute recurrent pancreatitis to chronic pancreatitis in children, especially among PRSS1 patients. But it was not obvious to others, and no one had systematically shown this to our knowledge. And so we went to task and put it to the test. And the result was an exciting clinical paper that was published that same year in 2019 from the INSPIRE cohort, first authored by uh, Quinn Liu and senior authored by Alia Uch. Um, and we showed that the time of progression from initial attack of acute recurrent pancreatitis to chronic pancreatitis in these children was just under four years, uh, which was astonishing. And uh, and then there were certain other aspects. But among the many findings, we showed that children with pathogenic PRSS1 variants progressed twice as fast to chronic pancreatitis compared to children without the variant. And then we're talking 2.5 years progression rate versus about 4.5 years. And so uh, what was exciting to me about all of this was the ability to really get stimulated by patient problems and to be able to uh, systematically 
methodically, scientifically uh, address them in a way that uh, I hope is uh, useful to patients and uh, their families. That was great. Uh, we did have Dr. Uch here on the podcast, and she spoke to us about acute pancreatitis. Today, we really want to touch upon chronic pancreatitis. We want to start off with what is the actual definition of chronic pancreatitis? And you mentioned a little bit about this when you talked a little bit earlier about um, how people with acute recurrent pancreatitis within four years develop chronic pancreatitis. But how is it different from or related to uh, acute recurrent pancreatitis? If you can kind of just take us through the different uh, definitions, mean both. Certainly. Let's simplify things. There's the fundamental histopathological definitions. Acute pancreatitis is a reversible acute inflammatory change in the pancreas that can lead nonetheless to severe intrapancreatic or extrapancreatic complications. Most cases are single acute. When patients have more than one episode, they are simply defined as having acute recurrent pancreatitis, so two or more episodes of acute pancreatitis. However, chronic pancreatitis from the fundamental histopathological definition is a potentially irreversible, now that's debated, but potentially irreversible inflammatory condition of the pancreas in which development of fibrosis and loss of pancreatic parenchyma can result in impaired endocrine as well as exocrine pancreatic function. So that's the fundamental histopathological definition of chronic pancreatitis. And then there is a practical clinical definition. And it uh, comes from a paper published by the Inspire Group in 2012 in JPGN, co-first authored by Veronique Morinville and myself, and senior authored by Alia Uch. And it came after much deliberation. What we said was, which was not dissimilar from what many adult statements are like, that you need to have first and foremost clinically abnormal imaging findings in the pancreas. Those can include the sinequinone, which is found in advanced cases of pancreatic calcifications, sometimes even seen on plain x-ray, but best seen on CT, or at the very least, ductal irregularities. And so in addition to the abnormal imaging findings, the definition requires at least one of three other characteristics, either consistent abdominal pain of pancreatic origin, and you can argue what that means, evidence of exocrine pancreas insufficiency, or evidence of endocrine pancreas insufficiency. And of course, it can be stumped by everything if you happen to have histopathological features from either uh, some a biopsy or an aspirate. The story about definitions of chronic pancreatitis does not stop here, since this definition might miss early chronic pancreatitis, or it might include non-chronic pancreatitis, such as fibrosis due to non-inflammatory conditions. But that, I think, in 2021 is a functional definition and the best we have. I just wanted to ask a clarifying question. So can somebody from the start have chronic pancreatitis or they have this acute recurrent pancreatitis that makes them more likely have chronic pancreatitis? Thanks for asking that question. There are still quite a lot of uncertainties about the mechanism by which acute recurrent pancreatitis progresses to chronic pancreatitis. The majority of cases from our Inspire group, for example, of chronic pancreatitis cases had acute recurrent pancreatitis 
hepatitis in their history. There are a few who apparently did not, but they're a minority. Focusing on the bigger group, though, there are many questions about what qualifies as early chronic pancreatitis. I think if you go back to the histopathological definition, if you've got some aspect of fibrosis that's progressive, then I think that would qualify. We're very interested in this inflammatory disease and the biomarkers and immune pathways that trigger that progression. And We believe that deep immune characterization, which I think is the best time to investigate these studies because of all the revolution in uh, immune characterization that has occurred. Our institution at Stanford, for example, is a pioneer in in many of these tools, including CYTOF and TCR signaling and and, uh, CODEX and other high-end tools. But to use these tools for this question might help us answer when patients make that switch. For now, as far as we can tell, if they've got chronic pain in between episodes, then they may qualify as having early chronic pancreatitis. And if they have mild ductal abnormalities, that's sort of necessary to make the diagnosis. So Dr. Hussein, you touched on this before in the sense of talking about some of the genetic risk factors for developing chronic pancreatitis. In particular, you mentioned PRSS1, but when we think about all of the main etiologies or the common etiologies for chronic pancreatitis, what what are those main uh, risk factors for or causes for chronic pancreatitis? It turns out that we've only touched the surface We've made recent observations about the etiologies of chronic pancreatitis among all ages and especially in children. There are several new publications of recent, many of them coming out of uh, JPGN, that tell about the etiologies. Another one from the Inspire group chronicles that genetics, when tested, and by the way, we're only testing for what we know. We don't know about many other uh, potential etiologies that are of a genetic basis, but genetics nonetheless makes up about two-thirds of our group, which is uh, quite astonishing. And it really has closed the gap on what we had labeled as idiopathic chronic pancreatitis for many years. The second most common etiology is obstructive. And within the obstructive group is pancreas divism, but then there are other causes, including a long common channel. This is a debatable area and one that requires more systematic testing and perhaps longitudinal randomized trials of intervention. The third are this basket of cases that we call toxic metabolic, uh, and they include hyperlipidemias. We do have occasional alcohol, but it turns out the largest batch in this group are medications. So surprisingly, some medications seem to be at least risk factors for the development of chronic pancreatitis, as far as we can tell. And then there are less common reasons, including autoimmune pancreatitis. That brings me to my next question. So if, for example, a general uh, gastroenterologist suspects that somebody has chronic pancreatitis, what is a workup that you recommend that they do? And when do you recommend getting that genetic testing? Because the genetic testing is definitely an expensive uh, test to run on most patients. When do you recommend doing that? As a group, and the group is the Pancreas Committee of NASPGAN, as well as the INSPIRE cohort. We have several guidelines about this. The short answer is 
that we always recommend genetic testing for patients who have acute recurrent pancreatitis and definitely for those who have chronic pancreatitis. Other than genetic testing, what other testing would you recommend to do to diagnose the patient? Certainly. It goes back to the operational definitions of chronic pancreatitis, which are heavily based on imaging. So in addition to the genetic testing, which is helpful to stratify an etiology, knowing the etiology may help with understanding the natural history to a large extent. Imaging is also important. If you had to do one thing, it would be MRI, cross-sectional imaging in a uh, way that has less ionizing radiation. MRIs have gotten much, much better just over the last decade. In most institutions, they can pick up calcifications pretty well, although CT is still probably the choice. At some point, most of our patients undergo at least one CT because they've been in the emergency department at some point. Or you could argue that you could at least consider doing it once to look for calcifications if you haven't. But if you've got the diagnosis, it's not necessary. So that's why MRI is the most helpful cross-sectional imaging and one with a pancreatic protocol that examines the ductal anatomy. If you're at a place like our place, we have the privilege of having two pediatric advanced endoscopists, and each of them does EUS. So endoscopic ultrasound is more sensitive in the right hands. It can be exceptionally helpful, relatively non-invasive other than having to undergo anesthesia. It does lack some level of specificity. Uh, sometimes it'll over, overcall what might be normal. And there are not strict standards or guidelines about EUS. I think imaging is helpful for the diagnosis as well as potential interventions. A patient who has pancreas divism with recurrent bouts of acute recurrent pancreatitis or with debilitating chronic pancreatitis, most centers will decide to do an ERCP, not for diagnosis as much as intervention, although ERCP would be the gold standard for the diagnosis if there was a question about it, and they would perform a minor sphincterotomy with stent placement. So imaging in the evaluation is key. Getting a family history is helpful. Understanding um, environmental triggers, smoking, including vaping, are risk factors. We know cigarette smoking is definitely a risk factor, and we believe that vaping is likely based on the toxicants that are inhaled. And those are, of course, areas of research interest. Alcohol is still seen, of course, among adolescents, and one should think about metabolic problems. So always test a calcium, triglycerides, and consider whether there are medications that are risk factors. So they may not be the only reason for causing the problem but they could certainly add to it. I think that would be a comprehensive evaluation. We talked about, you know, what to do when we suspect that a child has chronic pancreatitis, but maybe if you don't mind, can you paint the picture of some examples of how a child with chronic pancreatitis might present? So who is the child that we might want to suspect chronic pancreatitis in? Great question. As we sort of alluded to uh, briefly, it's usually the patient who has acute recurrent bouts of acute pancreatitis. So acute recurrent pancreatitis patients are the ones who are most susceptible from our database to chronic pancreatitis. And 
you often will hear from patients a history of having severe abdominal pain that went undiagnosed for a few episodes. By and large, though, they will have acute pancreatitis episodes. There are occasionally those patients who just have chronic abdominal pain, that minority, and you just need to be aware of them. And it turns out that, as you know, as we all know, that chronic abdominal pain is one of our most common diagnoses. And uh, often the question will come up as to whether these patients have chronic pancreatitis. Well, one should think about it, even though they may be the minority. Check an amylase lipase if they have typical pain. Do an ultrasound at least, which is transabdominal, to evaluate for gross findings. And if there are alterations in bowel habits with perhaps the question of steatorrhea or diarrhea, a fecal elastase one is a great screening tool, just as it's used in uh, cystic fibrosis to evaluate for pancreatic insufficiency. And then there are the more controversial points, which we're really trying to wrap our hands around. And one of them uh, in a recent publication from the Pancreas Committee of NASPGAN, one that I highly recommend reading just because it really sets an interesting standard on how you take a age-old controversy and try to put people together towards uh, establishing standards. And it's about the story of endoscopic pancreatic function testing, which may have a role. And it's been around for a long time. It was first developed by pediatricians, and it just is begging for proper standards, uh, more uh, collaborative uh, work. But that may be of utility, especially when there are equivocal findings, such as maybe very early ductal abnormalities that are equivocal. Uh, does this patient have any aspect of early chronic pancreatitis with reduced pancreatic function on endoscopic pancreatic function testing? So that's the type of patient. Those are the symptoms. And I would consider at least screening tests given the clinical scenario. We'd like to kind of move on to managing these patients with chronic pancreatitis. I understand it's uh, not easy. Uh, these patients have chronic pain. Uh, they have, like you said, they might have some malabsorption, steatorrhea, and it requires a multidisciplinary approach. So we want to touch a, a little bit about specific areas of managing these patients. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you manage these patients? Thanks for asking that question. This is also a manuscript in preparation from the Pancreas Committee of Again, first authored uh, by Sinead Dyke and senior authored by Maisam Abu al Haija, who's the chair of the Pancreas Committee. And it's really an effort to help every center understand what's necessary to engage in multidisciplinary care of patients with pancreatitis in pediatrics. And there are management guidelines that the Pancreas Committee have published. The basic points are when patients are diagnosed with pancreatitis and have pain, firstly, use neuromodulators over narcotics. I'm going to go over the highlights because I won't have time to tell you the details of uh, these guidelines. But number one, use neuromodulators. If they have really intractable pain, there may be uh, an indication for celiac plexus block. By and large, most of our patients, especially with a raging epidemic of narcotics in our country, do not receive chronic narcotics. What has been shown to be helpful, at least in some studies, and there was a study in gastroenterology from a group in India that showed that pain could be somewhat controlled by antioxidants 
in patients with chronic pancreatitis. Another group in the UK showed it did not help. And there's a controversy as to whether the group in the UK had more alcohol abuse compared to the ones in India. Nonetheless, I will often place patients on antioxidants and use a cocktail that's similar to something called Antox, A-N-T-O-X. And I got hooked on this from my great colleague, Mark Lowe, when I was in Pittsburgh. And um, it's rather benign. And so I will often recommend this to patients if they have significant pain. I usually do not give pancreatic enzymes unless they have pancreatic insufficiency because the data do not show a benefit. This is being evaluated more rigorously in children by the Inspire group, uh, as well as a NIH consortium that the Inspire group is part of called the CPDPC. And I wanted to put a plug in for this because it's these precious funds uh, from NIH consortia that really help move the needle. Nutrition is important because these patients can have micronutrient deficiencies. By and large, we recommend a healthy diet. We do not recommend a low-fat diet. If they have pancreatic insufficiency, they should be on enzymes and that should cover them for a healthy diet. When there are pancreatic intraductal stones, then uh, there may be an indication for endotherapy with lithotripsy, if there are strictures for dilatation. And um, there are behavioral modifications that uh, are being intensely tried. The question is, how do you assess pain? And there's an intense effort. And I'm proud to say that The American Pancreatic Association has been sort of a leader in promoting the groups who um, have led these efforts. And there is now a greater effort towards being more objective in quantifying the level of pain using um, high-end instruments. But more to come about that. When pain is intractable, despite all these measures, and there's significant debility to the patient that's when we think about total pancreatectomy, auto-islet cell transplantation. I will say that there's much less emphasis on surgical resections or duct decompression therapies because they uh, remove aspects of the pancreas and that are no longer available for auto-islet cell retrieval during the total pancreatectomy and auto-islet cell transplantation. So I've sort of in a nutshell given you a picture, I hope, of the different types of interventions for these patients. But I will tell you that they suffer quite a bit of debility. We did a study in the Inspire group and showed that a large number of the chronic pancreatitis patients have missed school, their families miss work, they are incapacitated, many of them. Dr. Hussein, you mentioned that for very valid and good reasons, you uh, would advise that people try to minimize narcotics and use neuromodulators instead. Could you give us a sense of, of the patients with chronic pancreatitis that you've managed where pain is a significant problem? Roughly what proportion are able to have reasonable quality of life, reasonable pain control using just neuromodulator medications and um, non-pharmacologic adjuncts? Everyone's experience is a little different. And Many of the patients that we see are in quaternary care centers, came to us as second or third opinions after debilitating pain and the lack of efficacy of these neuromodulators. And when I was in Pittsburgh, it came for example, 
uh, high-end endotherapy and similar here at Stanford. So I, I think that we, we sort of have a referral bias in being able to answer this question. By and large, the studies will tell us from our groups that a substantial portion benefit from neuromodulatory therapy and from celiac plexus blocks. Just on that note, I, I just make one statement, the field is moving in terms of how we provide those interventional pain therapies. By and large, in children, we ask our interventional radiologist to perform the celiac block. In adults, for example, the advanced endoscopist will uh, actually administer the celiac block through an EUS-guided approach in the stomach. And it better targets the ganglion and there's a little more precision. And so our uh, therapeutic endoscopists are doing that. We're hoping to dedicate a full episode for TPIAT or total pancreatectomy and islet cell transplantation. We want to touch very briefly on that. When would you recommend a patient to be referred for TPIAT? The general guidelines for TPIAT are to refer patients who have intractable chronic pancreatitis symptoms and primarily pain at the debility, so intractable pain. You could also argue in the much less common scenario that a patient with frequent bouts of acute recurrent pancreatitis that's unremitting could also be at least considered, especially since we know that there's a progression to chronic pancreatitis. The reason we think about this is that the data suggests, and these are primarily data from the University of Minnesota and other groups have now shown similar trends, and these data are currently led by Molina Bellin, and they show that children benefit from TPIT more than adults. Younger children benefit more than older children. And that benefit is specifically the independence from insulin after total pancreatectomy auto islet cell transplantation. And so we try to capture them, that balance, you try to capture them early enough so that they have maximal benefit, but only when they really need it. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what some of the complications or potential complications or consequences of chronic pancreatitis might be and, and how we watch out for them over time. It might be easiest to think about the problems of chronic, chronic pancreatitis as being pancreas intrinsic and then extrinsic. Within the pancreas, patients can develop pseudocysts that uh, can obstruct. They can have ischemic attacks. They can have inflammatory attacks, of course, but as the pancreas burns out, they're less common, but the ischemic attacks could occur. Stricture of the ducts of the pancreas can uh, cause pancreatic ductal hypertension. And we think that that's a primary reason for pain, although that is somewhat debatable just because duct compression surgeries don't help everyone. Also within the pancreas, but now going outside, there are, the pancreas is highly innervated. And it, that's a, a good thing because it's sort of is a sensitive organ and you want to know how it's doing and to be able to give it neural inputs for proper function. But it's also a double-edged sword in that chronic pancreatitis can uh, cause among the worst pain that patients suffer of any disease. And it's that chronic neuronal change that happens within and then outside of the pancreas, that's really the problem, which is again, why total pancreatectomy is sometimes 
better when you do it earlier on because at some advanced stage, even when you remove the pancreas, patients continue to have lingering pain, sort of like phantom pain. Outside of the pancreas, there are more complications. And patients with pancreatitis in general, chronic pancreatitis included, can have peptic ulcer disease. They're more likely to have irritable bowel syndrome. They can develop biliary strictures. And one should keep that in mind because remember in most people, the common bile duct traverses through the head of the pancreas that it joins the pancreatic duct to go into the ampulla of water. So patients can develop biliary strictures. Other complications, going back to the pancreas, just for two more complications, are the parenchymal loss, right? That causes diabetes. And it's usually a brittle diabetes. So this very difficult to treat diabetes. And secondly, exocrine pancreas insufficiency. And just put another plug in because there are many more questions that these problems uh, raise. We've often thought that if you remove the pancreas and, and just fed patients pancreatic enzymes, that was the solution. We've come to realize that pancreatic output is more than just enzymes. There may be antimicrobial peptides in pancreatic fluid that have a homeostatic effect on the microbiome maintain its health. Um, and patients who have undergo pancreatectomy, uh, this is worth studying. Many of them are reported to have dysbiosis. Um, and so chronic pancreatitis patients who have pancreatic insufficiency, even when you replace them with pancreatic enzymes, uh, can have uh, dysbiosis. One other thing which one should be aware of, which is that chronic pancreatitis is a risk factor for pancreatic cancer, especially when you have some genetic syndromes such as PRSS1. But among all comers with chronic pancreatitis, there's probably a three to five, maybe slightly higher percent uh, lifetime risk of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. So important to know. Going outside the pancreas, duodenal obstruction, splenic vein thrombosis um, are also reported often with acute flares, but, but sometimes it's insidious. Dr. Sano, it's great having you here today on our podcast. And we usually ask our guests if they have any advice for trainees or junior faculty. Certainly be curious, listen to your patients, be motivated to solve their problems, be passionate and know that it will take time and there will be struggles. Science and medicine is a marathon, not a sprint, even though it seems like we're often running the race for a deadline, for example. We're in the most exciting times in both science and medicine. And so there may be ups and downs in funding. There may be challenges in healthcare. Many are challenged by low morale in a raging pandemic of volatility, and it has an impact on our wellness. But don't throw in the towel. Work with your colleagues, your institution, and one another as a whole. And that's the beauty of NASPGAN. And let's develop solutions to those challenges, whether they're for patient diseases or for the delivery of care or the scientific problems that we've taken on in our careers. And so whether you're a physician in your mind or a scientist or a hybrid or in whichever degree you are as a hybrid, always test what you think you know or others tell you. 
And I'd like to end by going back to that Nobel laureate in economics from 2019 and the round table discussion. When you think something is obvious, put it to the test. I think that pretty much sums up my career goals to marry science and medicine thus far. And I hope for the next 20 years or more of a nurturing uh, marriage. Encouraging words. Thank you, Dr. Hussein. Thanks again for taking the time to sit down with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, Thanks for doing this and for the service that you provide. you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at, at, at Pediatric GI Podcast uh, for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And uh, like we mentioned off the top, if you like what you heard, if you want to support the podcast, it would really help us if you uh, left us a review on Apple Podcast or on your podcast platform of choice. Um, it helps us to, if you tell somebody uh, that you know about the podcast, tell a peer, tell a colleague, tell a tell your boss, um, tell a trainee, uh, let others discover the podcast. And uh, if you also want to support uh, the NASPCAN Foundation and all of the great work that they do, you can uh, donate by uh, clicking on the link in our show notes, or you can also get there through www.naspegan.org. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now. <laughs>